0: Welcome to the Western Bell Podcast series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Conscience, the Transformative Effect of Working with Inner Conflict. It is an interview with Clelia Lewis that was conducted on Saturday, September 4th, 2021, in Prescott, Arizona. Clelia is author of Stainless Heart, The Wisdom of Remorse, which Redhawk calls an important book about the development of conscience. Bernie Siegel calls it a guide to transformation and growth free of the burden of unhealthy guilt, shame, and blame. Clelia is a freelance editor specializing in works of spiritual teachings, memoir, and self-development. She has been a spiritual practitioner and a student of the teacher Lee Lozowick for many years and was a singer and performer in the band Attila the Hunza. If there is benefit in this presentation for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Clelia, in the introduction of the book, you tell a story about your dad. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You said that he and your mom had come to a band performance that you had given with Attila the Hunza. Yeah. And that after that was over, he wrote to you. Yeah. He wrote to you and said that now he could die happy. What was it about that experience that prompted you to put this in the introduction? And how does his interaction with you about that, what does that have to do with remorse?
2: Well, my father is somebody who experiences a lot of remorse and a lot of guilt And I think he's always really regretted um, mistakes he made when my brother and I were growing up and regretting them at such a level that he couldn't be happy. What he thought was that he had done damage. Mm -hmm. And that was more (laughs) visible in me than my brother (laughs) because I had a pretty rocky teenage and young adult period of my life.
0: You said that you were pretty shy as
2: a kid. I was very shy. Yeah, really shy. I mean, that was super meaningful for me when he sent me that email and it just said, it was the two sentences, maybe I could die happy because I can see that you're happy, that you're confident and you're happy. And so he could let the burden of his mistakes go. And so I think the reason I chose to put that in there was because it's an example of what's, I think, most meaningful, which is we want the people we love to be happy. That's all he wanted. That was what his happiness was based on, was on me being happy.
0: In the introduction, you were talking about how other people's happiness is what means the most. It fulfills, you said, the deepest need of the heart. What's brought you to this perspective? You know, has there been remorse that you've experienced in your own life? But that's brought you to that consideration that the happiness of others is the deepest need of the heart.
2: Um, What's brought me to that? I don't know, my whole life, I guess. It just seems like a universal thing to me that everybody would would feel that way. We might not love everybody, so we might not feel that we want everybody to be happy. But, I mean, if I see an animal that's suffering i want to ease its suffering you know if i if i see a person who's suffering i want to ease their suffering i can't necessarily and it's very hard to feel other people's suffering for me i find it very difficult when other people suffer and part of that i think is my psychology you know there's a there's a type right whose inner sense of security depends on other people being happy and i would say that's certainly a a type that i am
0: but i wouldn't say that in the world today it's all that common for other people's happiness to be such a focus
2: yeah i think that's why people suffer (laughs) because we're misdirected we think that our own pleasure and our own taking care of ourselves alone is going to make us happy. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's not fulfilling deeply. It doesn't make us happy to harm ourselves to do something for somebody else. I think the thing that I saw in, in that situation with my dad was that my own happiness was actually a service to him. Mm -hmm. That was another piece of it. It was that we don't serve other people by being unhappy ourselves either. Because if what people want for people they love is to be happy, then the best thing you can do is be happy. It sounds so trite, but
0: well, he saw that in, he saw that in you on stage.
2: Yeah, he saw that I was happy mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't been for many years. Yeah.
0: So this talk or this interview is about conscience. Yeah. How would you describe that or define that? Conscience. conscience.
2: Um, the way I talked about it in the book, which I think is a really great use of the word. Of course, there's the dictionary version and, and many people's interpretations of a word, but the way I like to think of it is that it's the capacity to feel multiple things at the same time. And in the book In Search of the Miraculous, which was written by P.D. Sbensky, but it was about his interactions with Gurdjieff he said that Gurdjieff made this distinction between consciousness and conscience and consciousness, like being fully conscious would be being aware kind of in the higher mental or intellectual centers of everything or many things all at once. And conscience is the same thing, but on the level of the heart. So being aware of many things. And I discovered later, actually, after I had a child and I was, looking for wisdom and help in understanding the development of my child's emotions, I encountered this gentleman, uh, Gordon Neufeld. And I remember him, he talked about this idea of tempering. He talked about the development of the child at a very young age. A child can only feel one thing at a time. They can only feel, I love you, or now I hate you. And they can't feel both at the same time. They can only feel... I want that toy, or I want to pull the hair of the dog. They can't feel simultaneously. I shouldn't i have been told not to like, it's, it's one thing at a time. And he said, as you grow, as you mature, you develop the capacity to actually feel multiple things at a time, which is what allows us to monitor our impulses and make choices that might be different from what we want in the short term. So I remember encountering that and going, oh, that's the same idea, but in psychology.
0: Well, so then conscience develops as you grow.
2: Yeah. In the psychological model, yes. Like guilt does.
0: It's interesting that you bring that up. You make a distinction between remorse. Well, first of all, you say that remorse can lead to conscience. How does that happen?
2: Well, you could argue that conscience is there already. You, you pointed that out. You said, so you develop conscious conscience as you get older. And I think that's true. But if you think of it in terms of something that you actually have to develop a strength of being able to be with more and more contradictory things, then remorse would be, you have to think in terms of a basic sense of self-esteem, which in the book I talk about is basic goodness, which is a term... Chigam Trungpa Rinpoche uses, which I really like the way he talks about that. I make this distinction between remorse and guilt. It's very important because if you have a very strong sense of your own goodness and value, then when you make a mistake and you feel that it's wrong, you don't close off. You stay open. You're able to stay open and you're able to feel that and it hurts so these small instances of that would naturally grow your ability to feel those contradictory things. You could even say just feeling the fact that you made a mistake. I mean, as a parent, I can say, I was not a parent when I wrote this book. <laughs> and I would, oh my gosh, there's so much more I could say about it after being a parent. But when you cause harm, for me in the past when I caused harm, I didn't know how to bear that. I didn't know that I was also okay. Yeah, right. Um, So I think slowly over time, you develop an ability to... Is
0: some distinction with guilt? Is that with guilt, you probably don't feel like you're okay.
2: Yeah, you make a mistake and you think it has something to do with who you are. Mm -hmm. Your attention goes totally on yourself in a negative way.
1: That's what guilt is. Mm -hmm. Yeah
0: in the book you tell a story about a man who came to see Gandhi oh
2: gosh yeah well he, it's he, depicted in the movie about Gandhi I don't know if that story actually happened in his life but it was in the movie
0: maybe they just wrote it into the movie
2: could have been but it was such Absolutely. a good story
0: but yeah all right so there's a man who has a lot to be remorseful about when it. it comes to gandhi would you tell that story
2: yeah so it's at the time when um the muslims and the hindus were uh, fighting there were riots and they were killing each other i mean it was there was just so much violence going on because uh, the british were leaving or had left india had left sort of being in charge of india and of course these two very strong religions had people in them who wanted to make sure that they were represented. And I don't know all the details about about that time period, but so the Muslims and the Hindus were fighting terribly. And Gandhi, who had led all of this peaceful resistance to the British, now saw his own people fighting. And so he did something that he had done before, which is he went on a hunger strike. And because all of the people of India respected him and really loved him, And his hunger strike, the purpose of it was, he said, I am not going to eat until you guys stop, until every one of you stops fighting. And so in the story, in the movie, he's laying there. He's very emaciated because this has gone on for quite a long time. And people are lining up in front of him with their weapons and surrendering their weapons at his feet. And one man comes up to him and he's furious, enraged, his whole, everything is contorted and he throws down his weapon, but he says, you know, I killed a Muslim child and he describes it. I took the child's head and I smashed it against a wall. You can't save my soul. There's nothing. I am absolutely damned which all of us would agree. That's pretty much, yeah. You're just, what do you do? Nothing, nothing redeems you. And Gandhi said, well, I know a way out of your suffering. And he recommended that the man go find a Muslim child whose parents have been killed because many children were orphaned in this time period. He said, and adopt that child and raise that child as your own and in the Muslim faith.
0: In the Muslim faith.
2: Yeah. But the impression, of course, of what you're being told is that this man received that and was going to do that. Yeah, I told that story because it was such a description of something that anyone would feel was
0: unforgivable. Certainly, the man had a lot of remorse after talking to Gandhi.
2: But Gandhi's point was, so the man was like, I'm destroyed. I've destroyed my soul. Like, what does a person do with that? There's no positive movement forward. And Gandhi was saying, you got to move on and you got to do the right thing
0: now. Well, maybe he didn't have remorse at the time, but he was Gandhi was offering him a way to develop that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think we all have that opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about Attila. There's this one song, I'd like to play it now. Okay. Um, I just thought that I would play it at the time that you told the story. Uh Um, So hang on for a minute.
2: Those lyrics are by Lee Laswick and the music by Everett Heimey, and the lead singer on that is Alberta Smith. And then I'm doing backup. Well, we're singing at the same time. Have
0: you ever seen these clips on YouTube where somebody reacts to a song? I've just yes. been, I've just been watching some of these recently. This, yeah. this person like puts the headphones on and they listen to a song. It seems like they've never heard the song before. How have they never have heard this song but they just kind of react to it and they just yeah. groove into it. And then they analyze anyway. Uh, <laughs> maybe we can play one more song.
2: And do a little song analyzation. Well, yeah, that's, those a great
0: lyrics. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you're timing with Attila. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did that impact you? How did that affect you? W- were there experiences of remorse? Certainly there were joyful experiences. This was a spiritual exercise.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it was an experience that allowed me to develop my feeling center a lot more. Um there were just there were a lot of contradictions going on there. It was the band was um an experiment in service of our work together as spiritual students and making the teaching available through lyrics. And lyrics and music you know which really bypass your mind. And even though in our community at that time there were these very specific protocols between men and women and and being kind of modest and thing and being careful about how you interacted between genders we somehow had the space and the permission to just cross all of those lines in in the situation of, of performance. And that was really good. That was a really healthy thing. I think for us individually, for me, and also I think for the health of the community, because I think it really, I think it shocked people a little bit. And the fact that Lee who was the spiritual teacher was not having a problem with it.
0: You're you speaking know? Of
2: Lee yeah. Um, he was the teacher of everybody band. in the band he and, the and he wrote the lyrics And of course, there have been other bands that have put the lyrics to music. But yeah, I think it was just a really healthy thing to do. And for myself, I think it was the first burst out of the shell of shyness and shame and so forth. It really just happened to be for me like this incredibly potent psychological situation to put myself in. I love music, not as a musician, but as celebration and worship. And that was a very big deal to me. And so I remember the first time when I got to perform, it was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. And that's what I remember everybody saying about it. But for me, wonderful. I like let it rip. And so I think a lot of it was about just freeing the life force. Out of restrictions that even in on a spiritual path, you can you can really bottle up the life force. And that's not helpful for practice. It's not helpful for maturing. (laughs) So it was for me really important.
0: During performances, you were able to kind of let rip. You had permission up on stage to do that
2: yeah i I don't know how that happened, but that is what that band was really about. It seemed like it was really about crossing some lines and letting things rip and and you know, I think a lot of that had to do with just my personality and kate's personality um Kate being the lead singer and me being the other lead singer um Kate is very much of a she loves costume and performance and theater. And you know, I just loved singing. I loved all of that too. And somehow the alchemy of the two of us together. And of course with the other with the musicians who were all very kind, easygoing, amazingly supportive men. And Laura, who was the the bassist who came in a little later, but she she got to participate
0: to go back to stainless heart In, in the book you have a chapter called the real war we watch productions of epic struggles yeah and we love to see circumstances that have happened throughout history but in our own lives we can really get worked up over very petty things you say that there is something worth fighting for what, what is that real war that you refer to?
2: I guess, how would I say it now? The fight against sleep and unconsciousness and not being a kind of willing participant in, in life with like the whole heart, your whole self. I wouldn't use that term anymore, the fight. But at that time, certainly that mood of fighting was definitely a part of my relationship to the process of, of spiritual work and just self-development. But I think it's a fight against selfishness, greed, you know, it's sort of classic. It's a classic fight, you know, vanity, pride, self-hatred. I would say more, it's now less of a fight and more of just a work. It's a work and it's a very fulfilling work and, joyful like actually but there can be some really scary difficult periods because you aren't always you just can't always find the joy or you can't always find a sense of confidence that you're going to get through the dark the dark things you're a mom yeah
0: i mean would you talk about how the real war shows up in that domain
2: I had a lot of fantasies going into parenting. I had it. This relates to. Um, our community too, in the history of our community and how Lee Lozowick was a very strong advocate for conscious child raising and raising children in a way that they could be emotionally and spiritually intact so that they would be available for the beauty of life and the love of life. And, and so there was a lot of conversation about that in our community. And before I had my own biological child, I was witness to a lot of conversations and situations among parents raising children and, and, you know, this sort of this very intense drama of how you should do it and how you shouldn't do it. And I think Lee really used, he used many domains, music, art, art, parenting, he used those domains as a place to point out ego. And so in the process of people and their parenting, he would point to manifestations of ego. And we would take that as though he knew everything there was to know about parenting. And, you know, it's just a human tendency. We take things very literally. And so being a witness to all of this, I thought I had gleaned how to parent properly. And I was going to do it really, really well because I had seen everybody else mess it up and, and I was going to do it right. And then I had a child and that's not how it went. All my attempts to do it right with quotation marks turned out, you know, if I look on it in retrospect, they turned out just to be me still trying to survive as, as an ego. But now my ego was out there in this, in this other person who was supposed to be doing things and, and having a life that showed what a good parent I was. And so that's how I would describe it now. But it got me in a lot of tangles and I made a lot of mistakes and I caused a lot of harm. But he's also really fine and great. But when you're in the middle of it and there's a part of you, the objective mother part or the objective father part, Like that part unconditionally loves that other being and all you want is for them to be happy. But then you have these other parts of you and those parts are just self-centered and they want this and they want that and they want your child to behave this way for this reason. And all of those things coexist. And that's painful. It's very painful. I mean, I suppose some people, you know, their egos are well enough formed and unified enough that they, right. I mean, if you did a poll of everybody on the earth, maybe five people would feel that they hadn't harmed their child in one way or another, you know, small, big, whatever. But anyway, so, so parenting is, it really puts you right in the fire of all these conflicting parts.
0: It and, seems like it's fertile, in yourself. Gr- fertile ground for considering the distinction between remorse versus.
2: Fear. Oh, yeah, right. Remorse versus guilt, yes. And I remember actually writing a chapter about that in my book, partly because of seeing some of the parents in our community suffer because of the shame and guilt that they felt because they weren't measuring up, because they were getting this feedback about their egos. It was a painful thing. And so I remember thinking, you know, seeing some, particularly moms, and thinking, oh my gosh. I can see the worst thing is for them to be collapsing in guilt or feeling negative about themselves. I could see that. I could see that like what your child needs is for you to feel dignified and joyful. And so I wrote that part in the book about that, this distinction, like it's not, it's not helpful for your child if you're wracked with guilt. And I knew that because my father was wracked with guilt and that did not feel good to me.
0: You say that conscience develops as a result of dealing with inner conflict.
2: Yeah, of being able to be with all those conflicting feelings and not have to push any of them away, but you can just be with them at the same time. Like for me as a parent, even though theoretically I knew that was true, I could not bear it. I could not bear it. I was like the man who approached Gandhi, you know, the first time I did something that was clearly, I was like, I can't believe I just did that. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to be with that part of myself and the part of myself that really didn't want to have done that. It was so painful. It was heartbreaking. I think, heartbreaking. I
0: don't oh. know if all parents feel that, but it, don't we all know. have the opportunity to feel
2: that. I yeah. yeah. I mean, and I don't know if it's stronger for, for mothers and fathers you know my father felt lots of guilt though as i've said Mm -hmm. so i think it's an equal opportunity situation i
0: don't
2: think he's alone yeah so for me as a parent now my child is 12 my stepkids are in their 20s and you know it took a lot of work to actually do kind of some of the stuff i talked about in that book (laughs) Oh yeah, actually, like the the rubber hits the road, and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't just think about this. I gotta feel this, and I've gotta somehow live th- live this. Yeah,
0: well, that's the thing. When you write a book, you have to kind of live it.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have had to live it in the same way had I not have had a child. I think that that process really made made life real for me.
0: You were talking about your relationship with Lee and Mm -hmm. some of the interactions you had with him. One thing that you mentioned in the book is something that he says to you a few Mm -hmm. different times. Mm -hmm. He says, there's no magic pill. Mm -hmm. What did you take that to mean?
2: I really wanted a magic pill. I really, I would ask him questions and I just wanted something he said to help me, like to be the key that I was going to be able to unlock the door or the scalpel to help me just cut away the parts of myself that were causing me to feel separate and to suffer. And yeah, I I wanted it to be quick. I grew up in the 80s and immediate gratification is a a very strong part of my paradigm, (laughs) part of my belief system somehow. And so when he said there's no magic pill, I just took that To mean, you know, the spiritual work he is proposing is an every day, every moment, moment to moment, bit by bit thing. Just like anything, you know, learning to play the piano or run a marathon, anything you want to do. It actually, it's a slow, cumulative process.
0: Talking to you, I'm really getting the sense more about how the the development of conscience is a lifetime affair that takes place slowly, step by step.
2: Yeah, it has a lot to do with just growing up. I think we have conscience, it's within all along, but it definitely Yeah, I think it is something that
0: And then there are and then there are shocks develop. along the way. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the things that you talk about in the book <clears throat> are buffers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: To me, it seems like conscience isn't something that you can measure these days everything is so analytical and we're measuring every so many different things. Right.
2: But you can but, feel it in people and you can feel it in yourself when you're able to stay present with things.
0: You describe conscience as the wisdom of the heart. Yeah. And that's in a way not measurable. But you talk about buffers as those physical, emotional, or mental tendencies within human beings that attempt to lessen or entirely negate the impact of feeling one's true condition. (laughs) Yeah. So if we look at the world, it seems like people, you would think that they would have conscience about so many things that happen and it doesn't seem to always be the case. Oftentimes it's not the case. Yeah. People seem buffered. Yes. We seem buffered. Would you say something about like, What are some examples of buffering?
2: Well, first of all, I think that people need to be buffered. You know, reminds me of, wasn't it Jesus when he was on the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Well, I think the development of the ability to really feel these contradictions about being alive is something that you have to develop. And while I think anybody is capable of doing that. I don't think it's easy. And I don't think that everybody wants to do that. Or even maybe you could say everybody is on the road to doing that. But in Gurdjieff's discussion of that with Uspensky, he said, if you just removed all of the buffers from somebody all at once, they'd be in, they'd go insane. You have to develop the capacity to feel things and, and see things and be aware of things that are that. The capacity.
0: You have to develop that. What are some examples of the way we buffer ourselves? Um, To me, what comes up, of course, on the most gross levels are how people buffer themselves with food or with drugs. Yes. And things are too painful, and so it's some compensation. Yeah. But I think things can get very subtle in terms of...
2: Right. Yeah. So it's not like just because you're not an addictive personality, you don't have buffers, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, my attitude about things uh, need to be right Right, there's there's psychological buffers
2: yeah what could be some what's what are some examples of subtle buffers
0: well i was thinking that spiritual teaching can be a buffer
2: oh yeah dharma can be used as a buffer yeah
0: Mm -hmm. rather than sinking into whatever is really going on for one we can kind of rationalize it
2: I buffer myself with my mind because I have a pretty strong mind. So I like to intellectualize about stuff. That's a way of buffering.
0: Well, my gosh, I think we're probably buffering all the time with our minds. I mean, how often am I really present? Why do we do that?
2: I don't know exactly why it's set up that way, but I think I don't think it's a mistake. I think buffers are okay. Okay. I don't, I don't remember how I talk about them in the book, but at this point in my life, I think buffers are okay. I think you need them. They're part of development as a human being. I think we need an ego and the process of becoming conscious and developing a conscience is then it's part of, as you grow up and you start to be able to relieve yourself of some of those buffers. But I don't see them as a bad thing anymore. In Gerges' description of them, if I recall correctly, he talked about a train and about the train cars. And there's this buffer in between the train cars because as it goes, if it slows down, they'll all bump into each other and you won't have a functioning train. And I think that even you can use them intelligently. I think, you know, for example, Lee Loswick loved going to the movies and people could come up with a lot of reasons for that that they thought were really spiritual but what if it was just a way for him to buffer sometimes to give his system a break put his attention on something that wasn't right there in the in the field or chilium trunpo rimpeche drinking maybe he was just buffering things a little bit i don't know i'm not saying you know therefore everybody should go out and get drunk or something but i think i think it's possible to be intentional about it and i think you have to be
0: maybe that's the distinction is whether they're unconscious or whether you use them intentionally yeah maybe yeah and, i mean it seems like at the end the buffers get ripped off yeah they do kind of might be good to be able to kind of be with things as they are now at least at times but maybe it's just too much it's too overwhelming for most of
2: us well i'll just say for myself a few years ago i found myself just totally burned out just completely burned out and my nervous system and my mental and emotional health was not at a level that i could function responsibly as a parent and as a partner and as a friend and I think I had really high ideals for what I could bear. (laughs) And I think I was doing that also, you know, with some kind of desperate push that I was gonna, I don't know what I was going to do, get really enlightened and just save the world or something. (laughs) But I, I burned myself out and I was like, I need to buffer myself intelligently i need to figure out what i'm doing with my food with my time with my attention i need to put it on some good things i can't just take everything in
0: to do that intelligently
2: spiritual practice could be a way of developing really useful buffers things like meditation and right diet and exercise and good company I i don't know
0: but i thought that you said that um spiritual practices are a way of removing buffers
2: yeah, they might be both it might be both for sure, the ultimate goal is to be able to remove buffers but if if the wise sages understood that you can't just rip them all off in every case, then certain spiritual practices would give you a nice focused way to remove gradually gradually, yeah, I remember Lee one time using this analogy of you're like wood and some wood is very, very wet and some wood is very dry and the dry wood, you just put it directly in the fire and it goes up in flames. So that's somebody whose buffers are mostly gone and they can just be go up in flames in love of God and service and
0: devotion. Last night we can do this right here. And just, <laughs> what do you call that when we go up and, In
2: flames, you know, spontaneously, spontaneously combust. combust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then other people are wet and they just need to be kind of, you know, propped up near the fire and slowly over time, they're going to dry. Um,
0: like how can you work on buffers if by the very nature of buffers, we don't see them for the most part. We Ah. we don't even know how we're buffered.
2: Yeah, but you know how I'm buffered and I know how you're buffered. And we all, and we notice our buffers when we bump into each other. So relationship, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: You told some stories in this book how um, Ruben Hurricane Carter developed an ability to be remorseful about his own emotional reactions, even in the midst of such injustice in his life.
2: Yeah. So Reuben Carter was a boxer. Um, And in 1960-something, he and another young Black man were arrested for the murder of some people in a bar. And there were lots of circumstantial things that kind of put them in the police's view as potential Suspects, But they pretty quickly got just like, yeah, let's, these are them. And so you can read the story. I think he has an autobiography and you can read newspaper articles and stuff. But I think what I came across, maybe it was an interview with him. So he was wrongly accused and I think he served almost 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And he knew he was innocent and he knew his friend was innocent. And so he kept fighting for their innocence and he studied and he he worked really hard to work the system and the law to be able to free himself. He was very, very angry. So he hadn't committed the crime he was put in jail for, but he had committed petty crimes and he was not the nicest guy in the world by his own confession. And so even though he was fighting for his innocence of the crime he became very aware of over time that he was as much a prisoner of himself as he was of the system and by seeing the the kind of the unconscious and mechanical nature of the whole system that kept him trapped somehow he saw sort of analogously that in himself and he came across uh teachings of Gurdjieff and that just for him put it all together never known that I know it's, and it's not, you know, generally in the, in the story, but it was coming across the materials of Gurdjieff that allowed him to see his own process, whether he ever came out of real jail or not, he saw that he could become free as a human being by really seeing himself as he was and struggling not to succumb to unconscious hateful, self-hating and violent tendencies in himself, like in his own interior
0: world. You said that when he was in prison, he saw himself in the mirror and he saw how hateful and rageful he was.
2: Imagine you're in solitary confinement, you don't see your face for years, right? Mm-hmm. What he must be going through. And then he was getting a medical exam and he walked by a mirror and he saw his face. Talk about a shock. That must have been so shocking. And so he really saw his face. it wasn't like you and me we go in the mirror and we're like you know all ready to look at ourselves the way we want to see ourselves he just saw himself
0: yeah yeah maybe it's time to play another song Yeah, that, that little clearing of the throat and yes. yeah that
2: song is a really good example of the theater the theater aspect of yeah for sure
0: yeah well, the thing is that it doesn't seem like we can develop a conscience if we aren't willing to look at our monsters yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you've been in a spiritual community for years yeah it's one thing if you're living on your own and reading spiritual books and another, if you are in an environment, then that of course can be anything. It doesn't have to be a spiritual community, but it's <laughs> spiritual community is a place where they just come jumping out. It seems all over the place. What's been your experience of this, of of spiritual community?
2: Well, I think I'd say, first of all, that. For me, the foundation of my experience, my experience has been one of being unconditionally accepted and loved. That has been the foundational experience for me. And so I know it's not everybody's experience, but I think that that's the most important thing. That's what you really need in order to develop conscience is you need to, you need to know love. And especially you need to love yourself. And I didn't love myself. And, you know, I was not prepared. I mean, I've, I was in Lee's company for a long time, over 20 years. And I could not do deep spiritual work because I did not love myself. That's really a foundational thing. So... Being in a spiritual community for me was a combination of being of experiencing that kind of love from him, from other people, and then coming up into conflict with other people and having, yeah, just living with people and doing projects with people, you know? Like it's, anytime you do a creative project together, aggression and stuff comes out, vanity, pride, um, territorialness, all these things come out So then you get to, you get to develop conscience because you're feeling both of those things in a community. And I think as in any other situation, it's very hard for us to feel all those things at the same time. And we may think, well, it's not a spiritual community if they're this and then they're that, but it's not any different than anywhere else other than you just have a tacit agreement that you're going to try to see those things really honestly and work with them
0: you've said that you don't think you can do real spiritual work if you don't love yourself.
2: I mean, I suppose it could be argued that learning to love yourself is a part of the path, but yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think I really finally found out eventually that if I didn't really love myself, all the bits and parts and the monsters and the angels and all of it, then all my behaviors would be governed by the need to somehow achieve love in some other way than just being able to give it to myself. (laughs) And so I noticed in myself I can't say this is universally true but I think it probably is but but I noticed for myself that I couldn't have true integrity if I didn't love myself. If I couldn't be my own best friend, then I wasn't going to be able to do the right things.
0: It really helps when there are people even one who does unconditionally love you. You kind of get you kind of get that oh yeah I'm really okay at some level. It's kind of hard if there's not that at all in your life.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and Arnaud Desjardins, in this chapter at the end of this this book, Toward the Fullness of Life, he says, you know, when you encounter spiritual teachers, that's what you encounter is someone who completely unconditionally loves you. And that's so needed. But he also said um, in a talk that he gave we ought, we don't let that love in. It's very hard to actually let that love in for most of us. We've talked for hours about why that is. But, um, well, what he says in this book is he says, you can't let love in until you love yourself. And what a conundrum that seems to be. <laughs> because, yes, when other people love you unconditionally. Um,
0: you start to get the message.
2: You start to get the message but you can't really take it fully in until you just love yourself. There's no agenda to get love when you already have it. And that is the best way to not be aggressive, the best way to love other people, the best way to be a beneficial presence in the world is to love yourself.
0: Well, it seems if you don't love yourself, you're always searching for it in one way or another. Yes. We might not even be aware of that or what we're really even looking for. Yeah.
2: It's kind of crazy to think like yeah. that it's that simple. Hmm. All these different ways we have of looking for love.
0: So conscience, you know, there's an ordinary way of thinking about conscience like... Uh, my conscience will get to me if i if i do something i'm not supposed to do but there's a deeper meaning of conscience i sense that it has to do with life of having responsibility for it or something like that yeah does that ring true for you at all yeah
2: i think so i think that sense of niggling conscience is a is a part of it and i think when you go down deeper into the, the well of the human experience I think it's just, it's a bigger version of that. It's like you feel the potential here in this life. And when you're not in alignment with that,
0: it's painful. From your book, Mm -hmm. you you say that um, conscience is more than just following moral prescriptions. So it's more than just being good. And it seems to me like at some fundamental level, pretty deep, we know that there is a way of being that we're not living from most of the time and there's some urge to to live that i mean our conscience kind of develops and we know that this is not about us it's really about serving life but it's easier to just follow some moral prescriptions. I mean, and that can be in the spiritual community too. You you do these practices and, and those are good things to align you perhaps, but it, it can be hollow. We can see this in mainstream religions. Like if you follow certain rules, then you go to heaven. One of the most fundamental practices for development of conscience is called not expressing negative emotion. I wanted to give Two simple definitions of negative emotion. Mm-hmm. One is any emotion which is an automatic emotion is a negative emotion. Two, any emotion which I identify with is a negative emotion. And I think there's a very useful distinction that was made between expression and, and repression. So the 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 task, the external task is not to express, the internal task is not to repress. Right. And then we're told that that practice is one of the most fundamental ways of developing conscience. And I wondered if you could speak to that, why that is and how that works.
2: Well, I think because when you're not expressing it and you're not repressing it, but you're actually feeling full body, full everything, feeling that is transformative
0: seems like a lot of energy is needed for transformation and not expressing negative emotion collects a lot of that. If, if we're able to do it in the right way without repressing.
2: And I think for me, the fascinating being, thing
0: being able to really feel that. Feel, yeah. You know, that's
2: the thing that's really that like for me in these past few years, making that connection between the energy and the feeling because I've been so in my mind all of my life as a way to escape feeling.